Welcome to the Wellness Renaissance Podcast, exploring topics to help you find the pieces that fit into your health puzzle. Doctors are always looking for horses instead of zebras. So I was a zebra, but a little unique for rare diseases in that I also had a really common condition. (laughs) I had hiccups, chronic hiccups that started right after puberty. So for doctors and for other people, like I didn't present as sick. I didn't present as somebody that needed massive amounts of help, but I still needed help. And I was asking for help and they weren't giving me help. So eventually you just stop asking. Luckily, I I had a great support system. Not everybody has that. And a week after that, like I was a changed person. Like I'd lost 10 pounds. My acne had gotten better. I had so much energy. I realized that I'd had pain in my stomach all of the time. Now that it was actually gone, I realized that I was living in constant pain, even beyond what I had thought that I was living with. Hello and welcome. This is Judy with Wellness Renaissance and the Wellness Renaissance Podcast. I introduce to you Nicole Allard. She is going to share her story as you heard little bits of in the beginning To describe this episode, I'm actually going to just read you the description of the video on the Monty website because I think they did a beautiful job and it applies very much to this episode. The Monty, a live storytelling series where Nicole told her story and I have included a link in the show notes so you can check out her 12-minute story and I highly suggest it. She does a fantastic job. It is kind of a mini version of what we talk about here and then we of course do a deeper dive in our discussion. So here's the description. A strange medical condition leaves doctors perplexed but their patient refuses to quit searching for a solution. A young scientist, Nicole, spends years researching her ailments in search of the answer her doctors can't find. Learn how Nicole went from hating her body to being her very own hero. The theme was heroes and villains, and it's fantastic. This is one of those episodes that feels so much about exactly why I wanted to have my podcast. Yes, sharing people and modalities, definitely huge, very important part of it. But this also, sharing people's stories that I want to say are unusual. And this is definitely an unusual situation and an unusual case. But I think details within her story are not so unusual. I so very much hope this podcast episode finds its people, the people who sort of need to hear this, that, oh my gosh, I'm not alone on the planet, or, oh my gosh, this is what somebody must be going through who I know. Certainly not the exact same thing, but bits and pieces of it that are still really life-affecting. I've mentioned on the podcast that I'm having some weird body stuff happening for me right now. And it has been exhausting and stressful. And I I don't even know what words to put to it and mysterious. Basically, it's one of those things where you're grateful that all the tests always come back fine. But you're also like, what in the world is going on? 
So just the act of editing this podcast was sort of sometimes almost an emotional like relief for me of just not feeling so alone right now with the stuff I am going through. Nicole has a very interesting and amazing journey. Years and years, like 15 years, she went with chronic hiccups. So we're talking hours a day, most days. I can't imagine the body exhaustion that that must have gone through. And then to try to have a life, go to school, be a teenager, date, have a career, all of those things. Nicole and I do a deep dive conversation here In fact, this is part one of two parts I believe this podcast is going to break out into. And the first one is her talking about the details of her story and her experience. The next one, we're going to talk a little bit more about her food journey. And uh, she gives some amazing tips for if you are trying to figure out aspects of your food and elimination diets. Also about working with doctors. And then we'll talk a little bit about her experience living in Alaska as well. On one hand, there is so much I want to say about this episode, and on the other, I kind of want to let you dive in and let it unfold for itself. I just think this story, the challenges that she dealt with being, as she said, a zebra, this is such an important conversation. We have a quote-unquote system, a healthcare system, and I air quote around both the word care and system. Systems are great when they are there to pull the quote-unquote defective, dangerous product off the line or pull the inaccurate or unusual data that needs to be researched, calling that to attention. But when the system is designed to sort of toss aside the person that doesn't fit into the 15-minute discussion, um, that's a problem. And not only for the people who spend 15 years trying to figure out what their diagnosis is, and in this case, for Nicole, having to figure it out themselves for the most part, you maybe have your own version of a story. But boy, I tell you, when you're working with a doctor that's excited and curious and sees health as a challenge rather than just send me through my flow chart to find an answer, it's a very, very different experience. Before we head into the conversation with Nicole, I want to thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And for those of you who share the podcast with others, we really do appreciate you very, very much. And also for those of you who are supporters on Patreon, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for continuing to support the podcast at this time. I know it's been a crazy year for many people. And so those of you who are supporting really do mean a lot to me. I really appreciate it. And I know that I haven't been as regular with episodes as I have been in the past, um, because I'm trying to figure out how to take care of my own health and take the advice for which I pass out on the podcast. And it has been a little bit of a challenge balancing everything. So I just sincerely want to appreciate you. I put a lot of work into this podcast. And I know many of you recognize that um, by your comments, and of course, also by your support in whatever way you give that Patreon or your likes on Facebook or you're sharing the podcast. Really, all of those things mean they mean a lot. So thank you very much. I also want to thank our advertising sponsor, Green Home Solutions of Duluth. If you are in Duluth, Minnesota, surrounding areas, or even any other part of the United States, Green Home Solutions can be a part of your air quality. May is Indoor Air Quality Month. I did not know there was an Indoor Air Quality Month. 
We all know it is great to get outside and breathe that fresh air and yay, it's warmer and I hope it's warmer wherever you are. And we can get outside and do that. And that is wonderful. But we also have to consider what is going on. What are we breathing in our own homes? And certainly summer is coming and we're going to be opening our windows more. Nonetheless, we should think about if you've got something going on in your house or your cabin, give them a call. If you're in Duluth, 218-576-5293. Again, that's 218-576-5293. And if you are outside of Duluth, Minnesota, you can check them out at greenhomesolutions.com. Call 1-800-SOLUTIONS and you will be directed to the nearest Green Home Solutions near you. Green Home Solutions is your indoor air quality experts, mold, disinfection, odor, allergen control, and more. So much more. All right. Join me for my discussion with Nicole. Welcome, Nicole. I am talking to you from Alaska. Oh, you are from Alaska. I'm not from Alaska. (laughs) 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 Which you're probably not used to saying, oh, how is it down south? Um, Right. It happens a lot up here. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's freaking cold where I am. Uh, So it's like, I don't know what the wind chill is right now. If it's like 20, 30, 20 below, at least, I think. So we're so, quite firm. I think it's like 10 degrees outside right now. So it's, it's sweltering, nice and balmy. Um, we're not quite in, in t-shirts, but we're, <laughs> we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I live outside of um, Denali National Park. So we're in interior Alaska. Um, so super, not super rural. Um, actually, it's quite, quite a big town as far as Alaska goes. Um, we have a road. And, and everything which is it's just a little different I thought I was moving to a small town and by other standards yes um by Alaska standards it's quite large okay <laughs> are you have you lived in Alaska your whole life no um only about two years so this is my second winter um so still relatively new this is actually the 13th place I've lived in my life oh, wow. um so and most of that was me moving around as an adult so I guess I have a bit of wander lust in me that that I am now finally admitting to. <laughs> ah. so. <laughs> Interesting. Was it something that you were not like, didn't know about yourself? I mean, like I was really liked traveling and, and moving. I just didn't realize like how maybe important it was to me. I was always kind of moving for a job or my ex-husband's job or, you know, like there, there was a, a career decision as far as why we were moving and coming up to Alaska. It was just kind of like a you know, I've left my career in science and I want to do something new. I'll go to Alaska for a little bit and figure it out. And I'm still here. So. All right. That's awesome. (laughs) Brave, brave of you. Alaska is one of those places that I've always wanted to go. I'm always fascinated. I'm fascinated with the length of the days and the length of the nights of the different parts of the year. And so hopefully someday I will make it up there and get to spend some time. Yeah. Yeah. Highly recommend. So awesome. Well, let's let's dive into our subject at hand. So you and I met through an unlikely way, as usually a lot of my connections do, which is fantastic. Some work that I was doing with my work with domestic violence prevention, you and I ended up connecting over 
a health issue that you have had throughout your life. I'm really excited for you to tell the story because it's really, it's really fascinating. And it speaks so much to part of the inspiration of my, of my podcast is to have these stories heard and for people to understand how challenging it can be when something funky is going on in our bodies. So take it away. Like let's, let's have that conversation. Okay. So I have a rare disease, which it's February. So rare disease days at the end of the end of the month. And um, what classifies rare diseases is basically it's a disease that less than one in 2000 people have. Um, And they're usually very hard to diagnose because so few people have them and doctors just aren't really looking for them. And they also often have a lot of symptoms that overlap with some more standard diseases. So you know, we, we kind of think of doctors are always looking for, you know, you see in TV shows, they're looking for horses instead of zebras. So I was a zebra, but a little unique for rare diseases in that I was also had a really common condition. I had hiccups, chronic hiccups that started right after puberty and would go on for hours at a time. And I was just miserable when I had them. Um, had them almost every day for, you know, weeks at a time. And then they'd randomly go away and they'd randomly come back. And for me, the one of the hardest things was being taken seriously because who goes to the doctor because they have hiccups? And then nobody could ever figure out why I was having hiccups. Kind of what's in the literature is that if you have chronic hiccups, you are, this is typically a disease of old men. And here I was as a young woman presenting with chronic hiccups. And so for the first five years, I guess, that I was kind of going to doctors and trying to figure this out, I was constantly being told that I was just stressed. As you can imagine, chronic hiccups are very stressful. Um, And being uncomfortable is very stressful when you're uncomfortable all the time. And yet no one ever treated me for stress. They're just like, oh, you're stressed go deal with that on your own. And so I was told for years, basically, that this was something that was in my head, and that I was basically just trying to get attention, um, was the impression I got, maybe not so much in those words, but that was the impression I got that you're young, you're a young girl, you're just trying to get attention. It's all in your head, quit being stressed out, go be normal. I just quit being stressed out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And You know, like, yeah, when I was in college, college is kind of stressful, but I'm also like a huge nerd. And so for me, college was really exciting and I loved class. And yeah, every now and then it might be stressful, but the biggest stress I had in my life was that I had hiccups almost all of the time that were loud and obnoxious and very, very painful. So just to kind of, kind of describe the hiccups a little bit too, I was constantly being told that I sounded like a creature all kinds of different creatures. So a pterodactyl, which is actually a really common description for people with, with my type of chronic hiccups, a dying cat that lost its mother, clubbed baby seal, constipated pig, like not things wow. you want to be described as, but you know, it, it lended a little bit of humor, I guess, to this thing that it just to other people sounded really funny. And to me, I sounded, I sounded funny to myself too. And when I wasn't in pain and and eventually, like, it just, I, w- I would say, like, I have the hiccups today, even though I wasn't 
actively hiccuping. Like, you know, I wasn't having that diaphragmatic spasm, but I felt like I had the hiccups. I was going to start hiccuping at some point that day and I, I knew it. And I, you know, I'd been hiccuping earlier in the day or the day before, but I just always had this pain in my abdomen, like just below my sternum. And it, it was constant. And there were times where I would be so uncomfortable that I would have to tell the people I was working with, like, Hey, like if I'm doing something that like, I maybe shouldn't do, like, feel free to tell me like, because I just, I just couldn't focus on things because I was just focused on trying not to be in pain. Mm. And so you'd think like, maybe I'd take a sick day, but when every day is that you can't, you can't take a sick day. You're just, you've been told, suck it up, deal with it, move on. And so you suck it up, you deal with it and you move on because life does have to go on. And you just kind of, you just kind of deal. That's kind of like the, what I was kind of going through. And I would go to doctors, lots of doctors, mostly GI doctors, because that's where everyone sends you when you have chronic hiccups. And so there are a number of things that actually can can cause chronic hiccups, cancer, brain tumors, acid reflux, plenty of other things. So basically like anything that irritates your diaphragm can can give you hiccups. Uh, if you have a hiatal hernia, like all of these kind of classic things that everyone checked off and ticked off the box. No, you don't have this. No, you don't have this. Or yeah, like maybe you have some acid reflux. So we'll treat you for that. When also at the same time, hiccups can cause reflux to happen. So I never felt it. I just showed the signs of acid reflux because I was always hiccuping. I was just so violent that I would throw acid from my stomach up up my esophagus a little bit. And it would look like I had acid reflux, even though I didn't. And so I would go to the doctor. They would treat me. It wouldn't work. I'd go to the same doctor and they wouldn't have any other ideas. And they'd just kind of move move along and I had to go to another doctor and, you know, just kind of start all over. I went to chiropractors and internal medicine and rheumatology. And I mean, you name it, I, I went there um, and everyone would always kind of try to send me back to GI. So eventually I, I went back to a different, like, you know, I've moved 13 times. Right. And so that was the other, one of the other hard things for me was having a doctor that could follow me through all of this. I was moving. And so I was constantly having to find new doctors on top of it and kind of starting from scratch. Not that, not that anybody really ever knew. So starting from scratch wasn't like, <laughs> you know, it was just kind of expected. Like everyone was going to start from scratch anyway. You felt um, like it didn't sound like you didn't feel like you were getting anywhere anyway. So like, hopefully the new person would maybe have some right. insight that nobody else had. Yeah. It's like that person didn't know. Maybe this other person will know, you know, even if it's in the same specialty or a different specialty, like, I wasn't making any progress and I was expecting the doctors to, to want to try. I think right. that was one of the big things for me. Like I was obviously in lots of pain and not okay. And I wanted somebody else to, to recognize that. I, you know, my mom recognized that my dad recognized that my friends recognized that, but the doctors just wouldn't, wouldn't recognize it or show that they wanted to fix it beyond, okay, I did, I did my basics. You're not, you're not a horse, <laughs> you know, so don't know what to tell you. And then they just left me with that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I was the one that had to keep pushing and saying, okay, you don't know what to tell me. Where do I go next? What do I do next? 
after I'd had hiccups for about 15 years, I ended up going back to a different GI doctor in a new city, went through the whole gambit of, of tests and he wanted to do an upper endoscopy. And I was like, okay, fine. I've had like enough of these in my life. You're not going to find anything, but sure. We'll give it a go. And, um, since he wanted to do that anyway, I was like, okay, maybe this time you could test me for celiac disease. Cause I had, you know, my sister had some issues and she was really sensitive to, to wheat and gluten. And that had really helped her lupus. It's this invasive thing. Like just give it, just give it a try since you're in there. <laughs> and I remember waking up from anesthesia. It's one of the, probably the only times I've woken up from anesthesia and remembered what I was saying. And I kept asking him, did you get the biopsy? Did you get the biopsy? And he was like, yeah, yeah, you're fine. You don't have celiac disease. And then I got the pathology report, which I know how to read. My husband at the time actually ran pathology for this lab. So we definitely knew how to read these reports. And he never took a biopsy. He just told me that I didn't have. Oh, no. And yeah, you're fine. It was like, this was the one thing I asked you to do. Like, I don't really even like... I mean, I kind of think like maybe I have it, but it's just a, a matter of like, I just, I just want to check off this one box. You don't have celiac disease and be able to move on. And so that same doctor, so he decided that I had acid reflux again. That was kind of where everyone would always kind of, kind of land. And they treat me like really heavily for it. And so, you know, for a month, I'm being treated very heavily for acid reflux, which I've never felt in my life. I, I hear it's painful. <laughs> um, and, and so I go back into his office and he tells me, I don't know what's wrong with you because you're still hiccuping. It's like, yeah, didn't really expect you to, but like, where do we go next? Like, what do we, what do, we do? I had, I'd finally realized that this was, that the pain was coming first. And so I thought, okay, like maybe, maybe there is actually something underlying this that we can figure out because before, like in the previous 15 years, I just thought, pain, hiccups, you know, hiccups are painful. They're tiring. Like even if you just have normal everyday, everybody else hiccups, right? they're not super comfortable for most people. Yeah. I just, I can't even imagine like when I think about that and I think about how annoying hiccups are to have for a short time, I'm just like the, to ha- wake up to that every day and not know, it would just be, that's a lot. Yeah. Well, and I can have normal hiccups off track here a little bit, but you know, that's fine. Um, so I have normal hiccups, which I realize now that I can have normal hiccups, but the hiccups that I had sounded a bit like this <laughs> and my whole body moves with them and it's painful like everywhere. And so, and it's exhausting too. Like it's, that's a lot of muscle movement all of the time. Yeah. And it hurt to eat. I was afraid to eat and I was afraid to drink water and that that was one of the big kickers with me too. It's like, here are these doctors telling me that I don't, that I'm just stressed and nothing's wrong with me yet. I am afraid to eat. Like that's kind of, kind of necessary for life. I'm afraid to drink water. Like these are, are not things that I want to do, but I kind of have to. And so it would just, you know, like I'd go about my life. I'd go to work. I'd struggle through it. I'd come home and I would just not want to do anything and I would have to force myself to eat meals and a few bites of this or a few bites of that here and there, because it just, it would always make the hiccups worse. Whenever I ate something, whenever I drank something, whenever I 
pushed on my abdomen a little bit. Like I couldn't wear tight fitting clothes when I would position myself in bed. Like I couldn't have a blanket laying over my stomach. I'd have to like make like a, a little tent of the blanket to like keep it away from my body. Um, but yet also still keep me warm. These are not things that one does for attention because nobody else sees them. Well, <laughs> you, yeah, they're exhausting. And they're exhausting. Yes. So this, this one doctor tells me again, I don't know what's wrong with you. You just have to live with the hiccups. Like they're not going to kill you. And I was just internally fuming. <laughs> like they, you know, like they're killing me a little bit every day. And it was just, it was really miserable. But I was so furious after that one time that like, I realized that that I knew more about hiccups than, than he ever would. Cause he just didn't care. Why would he care about me? And why would he care about hiccups? Like not everybody has them, but yet, you know, very few people had them the way I had them. Mm-hmm. And so he had no reason to, to push or to, to want to push. He's got all these other patients. So I left his office and realized that there was really only one other box I wanted to check off. And it was that I didn't have a brain tumor. You'd think that like there would be some other symptom if I had a brain right. tumor in years. But you know, it was kind of one of those things I just need to I just needed to check it off because everybody had been telling, you know, like there's all these life-threatening things. They would have presented, I would have hoped earlier, but I just needed to see. And so right. I went to a neurologist and um that I'd I'd spent a few weeks trying to find the right person few weeks of my own time while I'm also researching about hiccups because it's the only thing that's really maybe keeping me sane is trying to figure out what's wrong. So this was the first time like when I, you know, you go to the doctor and they have this intake form, like, why are you here? What symptoms are you feeling? And you circle all the things and you check off your medical history, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, as, as to why you're here, instead of writing hiccups, because everyone just disregarded me for that really common, not important disease. Um, Because for most people, it's not a disease. I wrote that I had intractable violent diaphragmatic spasms. There was one other word in there that's medical and basically means like intense. Um, And he just kind of looked at me and was like, why are you here now? (laughs) Like, well, what is this? And it kind of just piqued his interest. I was like, I have chronic hiccups, but like, maybe you'll pay attention to me. Mm -hmm. And, and I actually said that I was like, I have chronic hiccups, but maybe if I put it this way, you'll, you'll pay attention. And he was like, well, I would send you to GI, but you've obviously been there. So I have no idea why you might be hiccuping, but let's, let's give it a go. And he was the first doctor that actually listened to me. You know, he, he told me, he's like, you know, we, we talked about how, I just constantly been told that I was stressed. And he was like, okay, if if I decide you're stressed, we'll treat you for stress. I was like, you know, (laughs) like why, why is not everybody doing this? Mm -hmm. So we went through this, this whole, this whole kind of intake and it was mostly just him listening to me and admitting that he had no idea. That's refreshing. Um, And so in, but in that conversation, it was like, I don't know but here's some thoughts, you know, just kind right. of brainstorming in front of me. Maybe you're having seizures that could present like hiccups, which is, is a thing, you know, kind of going through some, some other, some other things. And so 
I guess one other thing. So I can calm myself down enough to like not actively hiccup, to not have the the spasm and to not have the the sound. But it takes me out of life to kind of bring myself to that state. And it doesn't take away the pain. And so as soon as I stop focusing on actively trying not to have a muscle spasm, I would start having muscle spasms, which I was doing while we were talking so that I could talk (laughs) to this person. And so then that came up and, you know, and then I like let it go and was able to like hiccup in front of him, which when this had first started after puberty, it was always, you know, I'd make this appointment for a specialist and then I'd go into the specialist and that would just be like the one day I didn't have hiccups and it was before cell phones. And so I couldn't just easily record it and bring it in and show him what I look like, what I sounded like. So this time I had actually recorded it just in case I didn't mm. have the hiccups while I was there. So we went through, you know, kind of all of these different things. He um, made sure that I wasn't having seizures, made sure I didn't have a brain tumor and listened to the fact that I didn't want a muscle relaxant because that's what everybody would give me. They're like, oh, we don't know. Here, have a muscle relaxant. I, I personally respond really strongly to them. So it's like what they were saying was, I don't know, have a muscle relaxant, sleep for 48 hours, and then still have hiccups. I didn't want that. Like, that's not a way to go about life. And um, so he was the first first doctor that listened to me and was like, okay, I'm not going to give you muscle relaxant, but let's try something new. Let's give you a nerve relaxant. Oh, interesting. Um, and ironically, the nerve relaxant he gave me is is one that people will say, yeah, like this can cause chronic hiccups if you're on this medication. So a lot of people who are kind of like, more into the idea of looking into chronic hiccups, kind of avoid this medication. But we were kind of coming at this from a, we don't really know, we're going to give it a try. And playing with the these like little, little things that had kind of come up in our conversation, the fact that I could calm down enough to not actively hiccup, to him indicated a lot of, you know, that there's something nervous going on. So for the first time, this was in my head, but not my fault that it was in my head. You know, I wasn't trying to make it happen, but I could overwrite the symptoms if I needed to for short periods of time. Right. But living Um, with that overwrite is exhausting and so much focus. And, and it's just because you can for a period of time, doesn't mean you can for a lifetime. Right. Or that you want to. Right. Um, And to have somebody acknowledge that this wasn't something I was trying to do and that it, it was something I could, I could control to an extent because I'd had to learn how to control it. You know, the nervous system does that, right? Like people experience pain in different ways because it is controlled by nerves. Everything in your body is controlled by nerves. And so, you know, if you try really hard, maybe you can learn how to kind of overwrite these things. Like we, we practice muscle control all of the time in, you know, working out and walking and, you know, just basic motor skills. The breath is, is one of those things where it happens automatically, but also you can control it. Right. Um, you know, so there was some level of me being able to overwrite whatever nervous signals were going to my lungs because we'd actually had a, we probably had a 20 minute conversation before he even started looking at my hiccups and, examining me for them we were able to kind of come up with some 
some of these little little clues that might give us a place to go. And the nerve relaxant actually amazingly helps with the symptom. Uh, it also makes me drowsy and sleepy. But we came up with a plan on how to like make that not interrupt my life and acknowledge that it was just to kind of control a symptom. And it wasn't what was wrong with me. It was just this might help you be more comfortable. And so then after that experience, it kind of gave me the courage to finally start listening to myself because I'd been trying to have other people solve this issue and they weren't solving the issue. And at the same time I was trying, I was doing all of my own research anyway, you know, I'm reading all the scientific literature, which I actually had access to as a scientist in institutions with that, that paid for access to these journals. And if I didn't have access to one journal, I had a friend who was at a different institution with different access, which is something that not a lot of people have. Right. And so most people are, are trying to figure out when the doctors can't figure out their symptom, they're having to figure it out on their own with just what's on the web. And how are you supposed to do that? You don't know what's real, what's not real, mm -hmm. what's substantiated, what's not substantiated. Like, it's just all out there and it's really hard to find. And so if you search for chronic hiccups, you're going to get not much information at all as a, as someone without access to these other resources. And then even then, you know, like because it's a rare disease, you end up on a medical forum where people are, Oh, Hey, I have this, these chronic hiccups that sound really loud and they're painful and they won't go away. And I don't know what it is. And their post is, you know, three years old. And so it's not an active conversation. You post something else and, you know, like no one's going to get back to it for a couple of years. And so you're not, you're not finding really any answers. You just kind of have to throw your stuff out there and hope that it helps somebody else because there's not a community for it. Mm -hmm. And so that was really frustrating, but because I'd finally like had this confidence to, you know, like I don't need a doctor to figure this out. I had, I'd wanted to be tested for celiac because I was planning on changing my diet. Like I, I had this gut instinct that something was going on there. I had a, a family medical history reason and support that something maybe diet was there. I just wanted to check off that box before I changed my life. And yet here's this doctor who essentially lied to me, um, mm -hmm. flat out lied that he, he tested me for something that he never did. But I realized, you know, like, so I'm going to change my diet. If I do it right, it's not going to hurt me. I know enough about nutrition. I, I can figure that out about myself. So, so cutting something out of my life, yeah, it might be a life change, but anything that helps my hiccups, I am willing to commit to. Right. <laughs> and, and it doesn't really matter if, if it's a lifetime change, like I, I hope that it helps me for a lifetime. And so after I, I left this neurologist, we, we moved again. So now I no longer had a, a doctor that I, that I could even trust. I changed my diet and based on things that I had researched, not even for chronic hiccups, it was just, you know, these are different symptoms and diseases that respond to gluten-free diet. And which ones are more, if you have more neurological symptoms, like what are these extra things? And so it was just kind of 
anecdotal that I was kind of having to go off of. And there was a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of research, but I didn't have celiac and I didn't think I had celiac, but I had this connection to a wheat-free, gluten-free diet through my sister, Mm -hmm. um, through a different disease. She has lupus. And so I decided, you know what, I'm just going to do it. And the worst thing that happens is I feel better. Um, And turns out I I felt amazing afterwards. So Mm. I, I didn't have hiccups for a week, but it wasn't just that I didn't have hiccups. Like I just generally felt really, really good in a way that I hadn't in a long time. And then I got the hiccups worse than I'd like ever had. Oh no. And I, so I was talking with my sister again and we were thinking, okay, like what else do we have? What else have I been eating? And I'd been eating a lot of dairy and I'd been eating a lot of peppers and nightshades. Um, so those are like your potatoes, tomatoes, eggplants, peppers. Um, and I had already been planning on cutting out uh, the dairy because that often goes hand in hand with people who have to cut out gluten and have neurologic symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found out in this conversation with my sister that my sister and my dad both had had positive antibody tests to green pepper. Um, and they never changed their diet because of it. But I was like, you know what? Nightshades are out. And then I went like overboard maybe. And I, Anything that I could find that like cross-reacted with gluten or, you know, just those diets, like I just kind of cut out everything and all of kind of the big classic allergy hitters I cut out, anything that, that just like I ate a lot. And a week after that, like I was a changed person, like I'd lost 10 pounds, my acne had gotten better, I had so much energy. I stopped having weird dreams. My neck that always hurt stopped hurting. My wrist that always hurt stopped hurting. And I realized that I'd had pain in my stomach all of the time, even when I didn't think I had pain. I just stopped registering that that was there. And so now that it was actually gone, I realized that I was living in constant pain, even beyond what I had thought that I was living with. And, and so I was like, super thrilled. Like I didn't need to eat any of these like 15 things ever again. Um, my husband at the time was not so thrilled with <laughs> never eating these 15 things again. And so he, had, it was just kind of an offhand comment of like, I don't know. Do you want to maybe try adding any back in, you know, and I took it for a scientific challenge. Uh-huh. I was like, yeah, like, let's see what actually is causing the problem. Like, not that it's just, oh, hey, like, I'm taking everybody's mishmash diet and putting it together. But, like, I want to see what actually is causing me to hiccup. And so I planned this whole double blind challenge for myself. Because for me, again, that mental component was huge. For 15 years, people had told me, this is in your head. Mm-hmm. You're making this up. Like, I had to prove that I wasn't doing it to myself. You know, like maybe I cut these things out of my diet and I just wanted that to help. And so it did. Like I didn't really think that, but I'd been told enough times that in the back of my head, I had to, I just wondered, like I doubted myself. So I just had to prove like, so it was mostly that, like, I just wanted to prove that this actually was real. And so in order to do that, I had to do it blind. 
And how do you do that with food? <laughs> right. You know what you're eating. It, you've eaten it forever. You know what it tastes like. It, you know what it looks like. When you're cooking it, you you know you've added it. Um, so in order to do it blind, I powdered all these things up in a lab that I was working in and I put them in pills because you can't just go out and buy like, hey, I'd like a gluten tablet and I'd like a pepper tablet and a dairy tablet. Like they just, they don't exist. Right. And so I had to make them and then I randomized them and would take a set of pills just in the morning, like they were vitamins for two weeks or until I got the hiccups or some other symptom. And because I had cut all of this out of my diet and it kind of came to a baseline, I kind of discovered all these other symptoms along the way that I didn't know I'd been dealing with. So like the first thing that'll happen when I, when I eat something that I shouldn't is that my lymph nodes will kind of swell up and, and be really painful. And then with certain things, so dairy, my acne will start getting, getting worse, maybe before my lymph nodes um, act up. And then I also get um, allodynia, which is basically it's intense pain to something that shouldn't be painful. And so if you mm. brushed my skin, especially like my thighs or on my back, it'd be really, really painful, just like a really light touch. But like, if you grabbed me, that wouldn't hurt. It was just the light, light touch was very painful. And those were kind of the, the two things that would happen first. And then my abdomen would start hurting and then I would have hiccups and, you know, all, all of these other things would kind of snowball from there. My wrist would hurt. My neck would hurt. I would just generally be sluggish and tired and uncomfortable. And I would have the chronic hiccups. But I had all these other things that happened beforehand that I didn't notice because they were just always there. Mm-hmm. And so the only thing that I, before when I was eating these things, I, I had hiccups or I was uncomfortable. I had hiccups or I was uncomfortable. I didn't get to experience the progression of the symptoms before beforehand. So I thought that was really cool. Right. Um, and that I could just understand a little bit more about what was going on. And it could help me kind of piece together what was happening in my body. And then also just kind of understand a little bit of like just other things that had gone on in my life. So I had a blood clot when I was 23 and was hospitalized for two weeks, two different weeks for it, but ended up, um, I went in with a little bit of chest pain after I'd been released from the hospital the first time. And they admitted me back to the hospital, had a CAT scan of my lungs just to make sure that I I hadn't thrown a clot and I didn't have a pulmonary embolism. Mm -hmm. And they found that every single lymph node in my upper body was enlarged. They didn't hurt. They were just all enlarged. And so for three months, we we went through all of this testing to see if I had lymphoma. And everything kind of came back as inconclusive. Nobody could figure out why all of my lymph nodes were swollen. Like I didn't have an infection. I didn't have, didn't have anything going on that would just indicate, hey, you have something, you know, that your immune system is acting up. And so eventually I had this one swollen lymph node on the back of my neck that you could actually feel and didn't really hurt. I mean, I was uncomfortable if you like pushed hard on it, but like you push hard anywhere on your body, it kind of hurts. <laughs> um, and eventually that just went away. And so the doctor was like, well, like cancer doesn't just go away. So if you have lymphoma, that wouldn't happen. And so that's how we decided that I didn't have lymphoma, but we never figured out why all of my lymph nodes had randomly been swollen. 
So looking back, like I might not ever really know, but that's the first thing that happens when I eat these things that I shouldn't is my lymph nodes get swollen. Okay. And so it was probably just that my body was really inflamed at the time because of my diet. Mm -hmm. And yet I had to go through this whole gambit of thinking maybe I had cancer and being hospitalized for a couple of weeks and, and then just being left as, Oh yeah, you don't have cancer, which is great. Like I hope (laughs) I wish everybody could get that experience, but also I was left with this big question of, ah, we don't know what was wrong. Have fun. You know, I mean, how does the medical system even figure that out? Right. Like all of your symptoms go away sporadically on their own. Like they're not going to keep pushing. Right. Um, they go, okay, well, our job here is done. Right. You don't, um, we don't have an answer, but our job here is done. Right. But nobody was thinking, hey, this person still has chronic hiccups. Right. That was, I mean, it was one thing, like I'd say, you go in, like, what are your things? Well, I have hiccups all the time. Nobody would ever put that together. Uh-huh. So I'm probably like, I was probably like the most worked over healthy person <laughs> You know, if you discount the fact that chronic hiccups is a disease, because everyone was trying to figure something out, but no one could, no one could figure it out. Right. Well, they don't even know where to look, I suppose. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, there's no chronic hiccup doctor, you know, I'm, you know, but I, I, I guess I'm, 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 I'm thinking, but there has to be somebody in the world who knows, but again, back to that you know, unusual disease. And then does that unusual disease present the same way all the time? So even if you know it, or even if you have diagnosed that disease before, is it the first thing you're going to go to? Yeah. Which is another really big overlying thing that kind of ties rare diseases together is that often individuals present the same rare disease very differently. And so you have different diseases presenting very differently to different individuals and not very many people having them. And so there are, there are actually a few rare disease centers in the world after, so after I figured all of this out and like, I'm super thrilled because now I don't have hiccups. Like they just went away. I, I'll still get them if I accidentally eat something that I shouldn't. Luckily I have this nerve relaxant to fall back on in the rare instances that it happens, but I don't, I don't want to be dependent on that. I don't want to mm-hmm. always have to be living with a symptom and treating that symptom when I can just embrace this simple dietary change and be okay with it. And so after going through this whole um, experimental diet on myself, I found out that of the 15 things that I'd, I'd cut out of my diet, there's really only six that I can't eat, which was great. Like, was super excited to be able to add eggs and tomato back into my diet just because they're really unique but also I live just fine without them so that was really exciting and after I figured it all out it was kind of like just that chapter of my life was done and over and I just wanted to kind of move on and but at the same time like it was really cool thing that I did and so everyone would get the story. They'd get this like long rambling story, which I just think was really cool that everybody wants to listen to. And I wanted to be able to share it with some, with, with people like largely, I wanted it to be in the literature, you know, like Mm -hmm. here are all of these case studies. Like that's most of what is in the literature for chronic hiccups are case studies. And they're all case studies for mostly old men. So I wanted to put a case study out there of here's me, a young woman living with chronic hiccups, and this is what I figured out. But 
you can't just put out your own case study unless you have a PhD or an MD and somebody, you know, like wants to publish that paper. And so I work in science, but like nobody that I work with, like that, that's not what we studied. This was my own, like on the side project. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I don't have a PhD. I've just worked in science for a couple of decades. And so I never really wrote it up. I mean, because it was just like, I'd have to go back. It was just so time consuming. I didn't want to have to go back again and pull together all of my medical records and like, Mm. write this whole thing. Like it wasn't, I did a a experiment on myself. that was an N of one, like it was just me. You know, it wasn't like I had these medical tests to back up what I had done to myself. Mm -hmm. I just had the proof that my hiccups went away. So I never published it until I lived in North Carolina at the time. And I had recently been introduced. We met at a, um, speaking of, you know, how you meet random people, but at a friend's housewarming party, I met this, you know, friend of a friend who worked with a, a podcast called the Monty and they do live storytelling events in Raleigh. And so we were, we're talking about what she did and um, the kind of stories that they told on the platform. I told her my hiccup story. Cause I tell everyone my hiccup story and She's like, that'd be really cool. You should pitch that to us. And I was like, that'd be great. And then I also told her this story of, which I think was actually the first one I told her, the story of being emotionally abused by my brother-in-law. Just my journey with that and figuring out how how to live with that or progress through it. And they had this themed show coming up where the theme was heroes and villains. And I was like, well, this is the perfect story for that, right? Like... I was being not intentionally emotionally abused by my brother-in-law, but that, you know, like it was still happening. And I was going through these family dynamic life changes where, you know, I was starting to realize that, oh yeah, like families have issues because I was one of those lucky people that always had this great family. And so it was like I had 30 years of, of family drama shoved into a year or two. And so I was like, this will be the perfect story for that theme and so I pitched both stories just because I really wanted to tell the hiccup story, but I thought this other story was more appropriate for the theme. So I ended up talking to the producer and I told him the whole abuse story. And he was basically just, this story is too complicated to tell in 20 minutes, which at the time he was right. It was, it was too complicated of a story. Like, how do you get an audience to be on your side and not feel bad and, and, and I didn't have enough, like it was still too new. I didn't have enough perspective mm-hmm. to tell it the way it needed to be told. But then he came back with, but how about we do your hiccup story, which I didn't think fit into the the concept of heroes mm-hmm. and villains. But after talking with him, it was like, yeah, like my body was the villain and I was the hero. Like I was both of those things together. And so he helped me construct the story of my hiccups, which you can listen to on the Monty. And it was the first time I'd really told my story from a different angle. I didn't go through the doctors. I didn't go through, you know, the the process of trying to figure it out from that clinical aspect. And the first time, like I really started remembering and thinking about the human element that went on the the feeling alone the feeling uncomfortable the just the the constantly being told that like this this wasn't something that was important to other people 
and that like despair and to be able to tell it from that human side of this is what it's like to live with a chronic disease was really, really cool and super, super powerful to then get up and tell my story on stage in front of like 600 people Mm -hmm. and to have them all like really respond well to it. But more than that, to get it out into the world and to have it impact other people with chronic hiccups, like the number of people that have been like, wow, like I never thought to think about these other symptoms and putting them together. I've just lived with it because that's what we all kind of end up doing. Like as young women, we just live with it. People tell us, this isn't a disease that we know what to do with and it's just hiccups. You'll be fine. It's not going to kill you. And so you just keep going you know, as a society and the medical field, like that's just, it's, you know, the doctors are the experts and the patients are, are not, which I don't think is really true. We are the experts on what is going on with our body. And we may not know what to tell the doctor. They have to know the questions to ask, but if they don't know the questions to ask and you don't push, then you're just left without answers. Right. And so, so actually it turns out there is somebody who specializes in chronic hiccups in the world and she works uh, in Germany at a rare disease center in Germany and they specialize in chronic pain and chronic hiccups. And so I was able to share this story with her and we've, we've linked up a little bit and we have grand plans for all of these things, but you know, life is busy and, mm-hmm. and COVID and, and, <laughs> you know, got a bazillion other projects going on. And so we we haven't actually come to fruition with making a website specifically mm. for bringing people with chronic hiccups together, because the thing is the university won't fund a patient register unless we have a patient support group, but that doesn't exist. And you have to have the time to get that all together, but we've had some really great conversations. So of all of the people that I had kind of met before I told this story and all the people that I've met since almost all of them have been young women. Hmm. There have been a few males that I've met, um, some young, some not old, but I have yet to come across anybody who is an old man with chronic hiccups. Wow. Which is what is in the literature as the most common. Wow. That is so fascinating. Is that the same, like the doctor that you're in Germany? Is that, is that her experience as well? Like, what did she think about your story? That So that is her experience as well. So most of the people she sees are young women. Okay. And not everybody has the same, you know, there's some people who present with pain and there's some people who don't, but a lot of them are struggling to go through to get someone to listen to them. And even, even knowing that you need to go to a rare disease specialist is really hard. Like I was thinking about why? that. I'm like, who knows yeah. that they need, you know, because... Yeah. Yeah, you don't know, right? You don't know until you figure it out. And yeah, that's so fascinating. Yeah. And so like we have in the US a rare disease center, I want to say. And I mean, you know, we have like the Mayo Clinic, we have NIH and, you know, like we, we have these places that are maybe a little bit more kind of focused on these like rarer things, um, but it's really hard to get into them. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just be like, ah, I'd like to go to a rare disease specialist today. <laughs> Um, and call them up and make an appointment. And even in Germany, they have a whole division where like they, my understanding of it anyway, is that like, you can apply to be a patient, right? Like, because, because a lot of it is traveling 
to be there and then having to stay there. Like these things that we talk about with cancer, right? Like a lot of big cancer centers, family has to travel to go to the cancer center. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the same kind of thing with, with rare diseases. Like you're not going to have a bunch of little rare disease centers. You're going to have one and people have to come to it. But yeah, I just think it's so fascinating that like her experience and my experience were, were very similar in the demographic of people that are presenting with this without answers. And yet it is completely opposite of what is published. It's it's so, uh, yeah, I I guess it's so fascinating, you know, when we think about the people who are really trying to suss out what is going on, right? Because everybody backs up, they go to the literature. And because the literature is the precedent that is set, and then how many people get turned away, uh, like you're saying, because well, that's not what the literature says. And then, so that just can't be, but it's like, but the literature was created. So like, and then you don't have a place to put your case study. So your new literature can't be created until somebody can figure this out. And then if you didn't go through the typical paths, which you didn't go through, your your situation never gets laid down as an actual truth and reality. So it can never be in the literature. And so therefore it's never going to be the new precedent. Yeah. And yeah. I'm listen. I'm just. It makes me so. It makes me so crazy. And then I listen to this going. How? How do we save the world? Because this is exactly to me. This. This. Your experience is exactly speaks to what is broken. I mean, I had an experience a couple of years ago. I actually did a podcast about it. I had a um, potentially uh, cancerous test, and I was supposed to go if I would have gone. You know, done the doctor thing that they wanted me to do. You know, I had a medical procedure that they wanted me to do that I wasn't excited about. And I'm like, how is this going to affect me? And and of course, one thing I hear from the doctor, which is no big deal. And then I talk to other people going, oh, no, 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 no. There's a lot more effects you're going to experience. I was working with a naturopath at the time who said, here's what I would do if I gave you a treatment plan. You can do whatever you want to do. And I'm like, well, I want to do your treatment plan because she was invested in my health, right? Like she was one of those people that was searching, going, we need to figure this out. So I trusted her more than I trusted anybody else I was talking to because she was actually invested. And so I basically told them, look, I'm going to do her treatment plan. If that doesn't work, then I'll come decide what I'm going to do about you. And they're like, "Mm, we don't want you to do this. You're high risk. It just doesn't, you don't cure yourself of this. This doesn't happen this way. Did my thing went back, had the test and they're like, oh yeah, your test is normal. And I'm like, okay, so you're telling me I'm no longer high risk. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what we're telling you. And I like confirm this with them three times and they're like, it's no big deal. And I'm like, this is the problem. I took care of something. This is not written down anywhere. Nobody cares. And so I'm like, this is why we patients, this is why we take our health into our own own hands. Sometimes this is why we don't listen to you. (laughs) because how many other people have done the same thing I have and cured their themselves, quote unquote, but nobody cares because, well, it's just, you just didn't have a negative test. We don't know why, but we don't actually care why. Yeah. I actually had a doctor once I was ha- had, like, I was just completely lethargic in college, like out of the blue, just couldn't wake up. Like it just, it felt wrong. And so she did a thyroid panel and the first one came back. My levels were a little low and so she does again, and my levels are like just barely normal. And she's like, okay, you're good. Like tests are different sometimes. I was like, well, you don't just take the correct 
you know, like it's still like just barely normal. Like, how about we do it a third time and figure it out? And so I ended up going to a different doctor who ran another panel and my levels were low again. And we did a um, ultrasound and I had a cyst on my thyroid. But the one doctor was just like, ah, yeah, you're normal. Because the second test came back. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's just like. <laughs> Um, yes. But yeah. yeah, like my, my faith in doctors was really shattered uh, for a long time after going through all of this. And um, I had moved to North Carolina, which the, the area in North Carolina is, you know, there's three major universities and a lot of them do medical research and, you know, medical schools and, and those kind of integrated paths of, of research and medicine were like really kind of connected. But then on top of that, because there was so much industry research and academic research in the area, a lot of people and patients were just more interested, I guess, maybe, or knew how to speak to doctors or not like a hundred percent sure, like what it is, but like the, the doctors in that area, I found that I could talk to in a way. And maybe it's just that I had confidence again in myself. And so for 15 years, I, I didn't, I wanted to believe in myself, but doctors had told me that I I couldn't. And now I had this like, okay, I know I can believe in myself because I've proved it to myself. So maybe my approach was just different to the doctors like Mm. that as well. But I think the doctors were also just more willing to listen to, to somebody kind of devil's advocate what they were saying and and ask questions because they were kind of used to that in the area that the doctors were more likely to have participated in research and a lot more of their patients were more likely to have participated in research which isn't you know trying to be argumentative but understanding that like sciences and medicine are not on par with each other like there's just a lot that we don't know and being willing to accept that and so to be able to then go to the doctor for something so simple as like, okay, I um, got a tick bite in the Shenandoah, which is a huge Lyme disease area. And I started being really lethargic afterwards. And I never had the classic bullseye, but to be able to go to the doctor and be like, hey, this is what happened. And to just have them be able to, to trust you on it and to treat you for it. And it's like, you know, they ran tests and it's like, yeah, you have like very mild levels of, of Lyme showing up. And you know, I know I'm pretty in tune with my body. And so I probably was going in, you know, maybe a little earlier, but also, you know, like to be able to then just like flat out be like, I am allergic to the medication that you want to give me. And um, so you need to give me something. And I'm not, not in the, I'm going to anaphylactically allergic to your medication. Your medication is going to make me vomit and miserable for, you know, the entire time I'm taking it. We need to figure out a different way. (laughs) And to just have them be okay with me dictating my treatment um, and me being a really active participant in it. You know, it's, it's not like they would let me do something that was bad for me, but to be able to just simply accept that I'm telling you these things with confidence that they're true mm-hmm. um, kind of restored my faith in medicine a little bit, but you can, you have to have the confidence to be able to go in there and say that. And when you've been battling a disease for so long and battling doctors for so long, you don't have that confidence, especially if you don't have the background in science or medicine to be able to back up your claims. Yes. Um, it was really hard. I remember when I was in college, I actually took and brought in a, a scientific paper that had talked about gallbladder misfunction causing chronic hiccups. And both of my parents had had problems with their gallbladders 
Um, my mom, when she was young, you know, so my dad and he was older, but my mom, when she was about my age that I was going in right then. And he was just like, that's not going to cause hiccups. I was like, but here is a paper, scientific peer reviewed journal article that says it can sometimes. It was like pulling teeth to even get him to, to look at my gallbladder. My gallbladder ended up being fine, but he never ran the panels that I wanted him to on my gallbladder. He just did an ultrasound. It was like, yeah, it's not enlarged or, you know, doesn't look wrong, but he never actually tested the functionality of it. Wow. And, he, you know, and he didn't want to, like, he didn't really care that I was giving him new information and he, he wasn't digesting. It. it was like, I don't believe it. Like it doesn't happen. It's not a thing. And blew me off. Yeah. To have experiences like that one after the other, after the right. other, it just makes you, it makes you want to stop trying. Well, um, it's exhausting, right? Like you're saying, you know, going in with confidence and, and I have, I have heard doctors say right to their patient, you know, or not, not to their patient behind their patient's back. They're not going to come in here and tell me how to do their treatment plan. I will decide on their treatment plan. So it's like, how do you figure, how do you assess your doctor's personality as to what way to approach them? Because like you said, we're our, our own best experts. And like, sometimes, yes, you are like, I don't really know what's going on. But, you know, I have proved to my own self that my gut is a pretty good teller of what's going on. You know, like I may not have the thing, but I know that something is happening and like you say, you can't always get the doctor to do what you want them to do. And I have, you know, not an incredible science background to, to yeah, bring studies and, and stuff like that. And in fact, my one doctor said to me, I will get her any studies that I've looked at because that's how she created my treatment plan. The nurse said she doesn't want to see your studies. And then I talked to the doctor and the doctor's like, oh, no, I would actually like to see your studies. So, I mean, it, it broke my trust when the nurses were giving me incorrect information, and I think that's coming from my doctor, you know, I just, this is so complicated. Like, I don't think people realize, even hearing your story, how much energy, time, hours of research, amount of money and time that goes into the doctor's appointments. I mean, just all of that stuff. It's life sucking. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, like, especially in the American medical system. You can't always just go to a specialist without somebody referring you. Mm -hmm. So you have to then convince somebody. So you, you take the time to go to the one doctor, convince them that you'd like to see somebody else. Go to another specialist, which usually you have to wait months to get into. You see a specialist, they're not the right one. Who's going to send you to the next one and the right. next one? And then to even be able to afford those. Like if you don't have good insurance, which I was lucky that my parents had through all of this. Um it, you're just kind of left in alerts. Like you're not going to go spend even, you know, 50 bucks, if, you know, even if you have like a $50 copay, that's, you know, pretty high for copay, but not unreasonable. If you have to spend that every month, that mm -hmm. adds up. And then you have to have the time that you're usually taking off of work, mm -hmm. um, let alone like the, the payments for the tests that they run, like that's just, that's just the visit to go say hi to someone, like mm -hmm. let alone the tests that they're running. The, um, when I had my blood clot, it was right after I'd gotten off my parents' insurance. And so luckily I had cobra my parents' insurance 
And unfortunately, it was right when Katrina happened. And so all of the paperwork for my Cobra had gone to Louisiana oh, um, wow. and was basically lost. And so I was constantly having to, you know, I was going into the ER for these pretty major things and being hospitalized and going to all of these different doctors and being like, okay, like, here's this random form that I, I swear I have insurance, you know, like, don't make me pay all of this money, you know? And so it was just this very convoluted, complex insurance process, which God forbid, like anybody has to go through. And luckily, like I was able to, you know, like my dad had been dealing with this kind of stuff forever for his own medical stuff. And so both my parents knew how to handle insurance. They knew how to handle hospitals and medicine. And so like, it was never like a huge issue. They knew how to find patient advocates if I needed them to be able to, to help figure that out and be like, okay, like I'm not going to pay you right now, but you're not going to like, that's not a negative thing for me. You, you know, we're going to figure this out. And some doctors are really good at that. And some doctors were really bad at that. Um, like my, my oncologist, when they were trying to figure out if I had lymphoma, their billing department was great. They're like, we will figure it all out for you. Don't worry about it. And it, it was so refreshing. But they were one of the few places I've ever been to where the billing department was, don't worry about it. We'll make it work. Don't stress. And like mm. handled all of it. Most other places were like, your bill you know, for $500 is a month overdue. And I'm like, no, it's not. And then they're like, it's six months overdue. And I'm like, I don't owe you this money. Mm. And they, they get mad at you. And, you know, those bills add up super fast, especially when it drags on and on. And right. In, in your situation, you, you have this rare disease, but in some ways you're not, you're not exactly sick. Right. You know, that was very much a thing is I, I had a rare disease, but it's also a really common condition. And I wasn't, I wasn't sick to the point of needing to be hospitalized. I wasn't sick to the point of not being able to, to deal with it and kind of push forward. Right. And a lot of chronic illness is unfortunately that way. It's like you, you put all your energy into going to work and then you come home and you have no energy for anything else, let mm -hmm. alone, you know, researching about your disease and trying to feed yourself and, you know, cook dinner. And it's just, you only have so much energy and society tells you and the economy tells you that you have to spend that energy at work so that you have money to do things like go to the doctor or you have health insurance to go to the doctor. Right. Um, because you lose all of those things if you're not working anymore. Right. Um, yes, there's the nobody taking care of you if it's just you. And so you have yeah. to keep pushing. So it's really easy to give up. And I think like I was lucky because my disease was really vocal. Like I couldn't hide it. And so everyone knew that I had this condition. <laughs> Strangers knew that I had this condition. The people I worked with knew I had this condition. Um, you know, my bosses, my friends, like you knew that this was something that I was dealing with. And, you know, if you were closer to me, maybe you knew other triggered, you know, like other hints that like, I was like extra uncomfortable that day. Like if I crossed my arms behind my back, cause I couldn't cross them in front of my, mm. in front of myself to, you know, like when you feel uncomfortable and you just want to like hug yourself and like feel a little better, like in that fetal position, 
I couldn't be in that position because it hurt. And so I would start crossing my arms like behind my back or like up underneath my armpits, like across my, across my breast because I couldn't be over my abdomen. Right. Um, and it would just be written all over my face that I was miserable and uncomfortable for the most part, like an acquaintance wouldn't know that looking at my face. Cause I was just smiling and happy and I was living life. Cause I wasn't going to stop living. Like that was the other thing is like, I wasn't going to let this interfere with my life, even though it was interfering with my life. But then sometimes it would just be too much and it'd just be written all over me. And yet I was still going to work. Like I, I couldn't take time off because if I took time off for that, I would always be taking time off. Right. And it wasn't until I started my dietary challenge where I had more good days than bad days. Um, and I was working at a new place. And so it was really rare that I had hiccups. And when I would get hiccups, I would revert back to pushing through and just working and making it work. And my boss would come in and he'd be like, Nicole, go home. You don't feel good. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I can do that. Like that's, that's a thing that most people do when they don't feel good is they go home and they rest and they recover and they, they let their body be better. Um, but when you're living with a chronic condition, going home and resting doesn't really always make your body feel better. And so right. sometimes it's kind of like, what's the point? Might as well be doing life. You're just kind of dealing with, with all of that, like exhaustion. Like I didn't know that I had, that I could have more energy until I changed my diet because I, mm-hmm. I was running at a pretty high level. So for doctors and for other people, like I didn't present as sick. I didn't present as somebody that needed massive amounts of help, but I still needed help. And I was asking for help and they weren't giving me help. And so eventually you just stop asking Mm -hmm. because they're not giving it. Like the asking is exhausting. Why keep doing that? Um, Luckily I, I had a great support system. Not everybody has that. Like I had friends that supported me. I had family that supported me. And that understood, like, so it's not just that they supported me. A lot of, a lot of people have that, like people want to understand, but if you're not willing to, to let them in, it's really hard for them to really know what, what you need. Well, and Um, it's hard to let everybody in too, because then it just feels like you're just complaining. Like if you really tell people how crappy you feel all the time, then they're like, what do they do with that information? Right. Right. And you know, so that gets kind of confusing too, because you don't, you don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to do with it. They can't help you help you, you know? And yeah. Do do you think that you're being in the science field? Do you think that helped you with, I imagine there were times that you had to take time off and things like that. Like, you know, had you been in say retail, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, and had your hiccups happen, that probably would have not gone so well. Oh, it, would, it would have been so different. Like, yeah, to just be in a job where you don't have easy health insurance, where somebody has to be there. It doesn't matter if it's you or somebody else. Somebody has to be there. The pressures on being able to take time off when you're in a position like that are just so different. Um, and then on top of that, like if if I had had a, a people-facing job like if that was what I was doing it would have just been so much harder because 
you go out in public and you're making these weird noises and people look at you and I'm okay with that. It's happened enough in my life. That's like, whatever, like I'll listen to your, your home remedies. And cause everybody has a home remedy for hiccups. Um, and <laughs> just like everybody has a home remedy for that migraine you feel, or, you know, that, that pain, or oh, just do this or do that. And so you're listening to that and you're like, yeah, you don't think I tried probably have, you know, like, but you still smile and you nod. But if I had been in a people facing position and to then have this thing that is very vocal and disturbing, I don't, it would have been really hard to even keep a job, let alone being able to take time off to, you know, when I was really, really miserable to be able to take that day or two to just, you know, relax a little bit would have been pretty impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, let alone like, you know, I was financially secure enough to be able to have all of that, right? Like if, if I needed to take a few months off of work, I could have done that. And my husband, you know, would have been working and making enough money for us to, to be able to survive. And so I didn't, I didn't even have those pressures and it was exhausting for me. Um, mm-hmm. I left science and moved to Alaska and I'm doing this like whole different, whole different life. And, you know, a lot of people work seasonally and they, they only have a job in the summer and there's no jobs in the winter. And, you know, it's just, it's a lot more of that like blue collar Mm. working class. And there's, you know, there's different levels of that. There's blue collar work. That's really, really high paying. Like you work in the mine here, you make really good money. You work at the grocery store, you make no money. You know, there, there are only so many employers in a, in a town that's really small. You know, if you're working a job where, you know, like you're making $12 an hour and you don't have benefits, you don't have sick time, you, you aren't able to take that off and you, you need that money. Like you can't, you can't just take a day off because you're feeling sick without there being massive life consequences. Right. And you kind of have to heat the house and buy food and buy you know a winter jacket like it's kind of cold up here like these are things that like even in a city where it's you know not the middle of nowhere Alaska you need to eat you need to you need to have electricity you need heat you need clothes even if it's Florida you still need clothes they're they're just you know and I like to think that I understood that before that I was sympathetic to it before but there are, are definitely things that I I missed, you know, and because I didn't have to worry about them. There was a, um, this time when I was, I was with my mom and we were driving in DC and there was this old man who got off the bus and fell down. And so, you know, we were basically at a stoplight and, but, you know, regardless, this guy fell down and we, you know, so I hop out of the car and, and like, as we're, we're slowing down, like he'd gotten back up. It's okay. Like we don't have to, to help. Like maybe he's fine, you know, but like, still I'm going to go check on him. And and then he falls down again. And, and so my mom, we'd finally pulled up to the, the stoplight and, you know, she's calling 911 and I'm getting out to check on this, this guy. Cause she's the one with the medical experience, but I was the one in the passenger seat. So, um, mm-hmm. so this old man, like he, I couldn't understand him. Like he was definitely slurring his speech. He was having difficulty standing and difficulty walking. And he obviously needed some help. Like I'm pretty sure that he had just had a stroke or had been dealing with a stroke so, you know, the ambulance comes and, and here I am like thinking I'm doing this like really great thing for this guy and helping him out. He's trying to make this appointment. And I, I realized, cause he's, he's got this, uh, like, as soon as he starts seeing the, the ambulance come, he's like, I, I don't want the ambulance. It's like, 
but you need it. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be moving. Like you need help right now. And, um, he's got this letter in his hand. That's, um, he basically had an appointment that he was going to the housing authority to like check in with them that, Hey, like I still need housing assistance and I still need help. Like I can't afford life. And Mm -hmm. here's this ambulance coming because he massively needs medical help. And yet he also needs housing. He doesn't want to be kicked out and he needs to check in. And so, so I'm calling the housing authority for him. Like, you know, he's given me his letter and like, I can barely, like, I, I understand what he's trying to tell me, but I can't understand his words because his speech is just so slurred. And, um, and so I, you know, call the housing authority. I'm like, Hey, like this guy's having a medical emergency. He's not going to be making it in. You guys need to reschedule. I'm like postponed, like, you know, like he wants to come, like he's trying really hard And so I was able to work out with the housing authority, like, okay, like this is, you know, like we rescheduled the appointment for a few weeks out and, and all of this, they're letting me do for this stranger. Right. Um, So that was, that was good, good of them and all, but still then the EMTs come and everything. And, and now I can't help this guy anymore. I've done everything, but I'm, and I'm feeling like a great, good Samaritan. And then I think about it, I'm like, I know how to deal with a hospital. I know how to deal with the billing at a hospital. I know how to do all of these things that this man may not know how to do or may not have the energy to fight for, the time to fight for, or just be scared to do. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and- the, the support of like whatever happened to him, like right. the support to have the help. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking, and then just having the ambulance come, the fear of now having, maybe having medical bills. Right, right. You know, it's... Even if you can't afford the medical bills, they still come. Mm -hmm. And you still have to deal with saying, I can't pay for this. You got to, you got to foot the bill. That is a lot of stress. Yeah, Um, it is. And a lot of work. And especially, you know, like, after the fact, like, after it was all over, you know, a few weeks later, it was like, I, you know, like, I wish I could have been there to help follow through and like, make sure that he was actually hooked up with the proper patient advocates and the, you know, whatever. And hospitals are are set up to kind of help that, mm-hmm. but they're not, they're not always easy to find. I can't, I can't tell you the number of people that are struggling through the medical system. I'm like, you need to get a patient advocate. And they're like, what's that? Because right. they don't know that they exist because the hospitals aren't always just offering them up. Right. Like you're, you still have to know a little bit about them depending on where you are. And, right. and so it's one of those things where like, because I was okay enough in, you know, financial security and just like knowing even that, just even just knowing that I had these resources that I could go find. I didn't think about, you know, and, and this was a, an older black man. So then on top of that, there's the racial aspect that I don't know at all. And I'm sympathetic to, obviously, like I, I don't believe there should be these gaps, but I don't know what gaps they're having to deal with because I'm not having to deal with those gaps. Right. It's it's interesting too as as I'm hearing you tell the story I'm reminded of a a guy that I worked with and I worked in outside of downtown Minneapolis and our work location had gotten moved it had moved to a place that was a little bit you know there was concerns about safety and he got mugged on the way to work which was a kind of an eye opener for me and I knew we weren't in the greatest place but this was a 
big gentleman. Like he was a taller than me. He was a big guy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mess with him. No way. So he had gotten mugged and then somebody offered to call an ambulance and he's like, don't call an ambulance. I don't have insurance. I have no way to pay for it. And this is a guy who was working a decent job. He was a temp worker. He had really crappy insurance. I mean, well, he didn't have any insurance actually at that time. I know when I was a temp, I had really crappy insurance and he was a hard worker and people kind of looked at him and he was a white dude and people kind of looked at him as slightly heroic instead of going, this is tragic that he can't, we can't send him to the hospital to just make sure that the damages he did have were not a big deal. It was like, again, kind of that, oh my gosh, you know, we kind of look at him and go, well, not my problem, right? But that could be anybody. You know, again, this is somebody's life and these things that happen cause them then to not sometimes go on and have a better life yeah. because of the amount of work you're doing, you know, like in your situation. And I, and I don't like, <laughs> I don't think I have a rare disease. I've just got some stuff that's like, eh, it doesn't take me down, but it doesn't, I'm not feel quite right. Yeah. It doesn't feel quite right. All my tests are always great. I'm always healthy. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I went and did some work with a, with a doctor who works with cancer patients and I kind of felt bad because I'm like, well, I've got this going on and that going, but gosh, it doesn't seem anything like these other people. So maybe I shouldn't even be here, you know? And, but at the same time, it's exhausting. And then, oh, you know, well, keep trying and you can keep playing with your food. And you're like, but I don't even know what to do with my food anymore. So talk about that a little bit, if you would, like, like you talked about your, your, your relative who had, had had the gluten-free diet. So you kind of had the introduction into that, but how did you figure out some of the other stuff? Cause it's in my mind, a lot of this stuff, it's, it is just kind of taking a gut shot and going for it and seeing what happens. Yeah. So, and, and a lot of it kind of is, so the big, you know, there are all these things out there, right? There's this diet and that diet. And, you know, like there's, different groups where you, you know, you cut out everything that's inflammatory, you add in all these anti-inflammatory things, you, you know, it's, and it's just like this exhausting thing where you're working through it all. One of the big things that like living with dietary restrictions that everybody, I tell someone, like, especially when I had 15, but even now I just have six things, right? So I can't eat wheat. I can't, yeah, I can't eat gluten actually, but I can't eat wheat. I can't eat cow dairy, corn, peas, peanuts, or peppers. So it's, that's not many things, but the most common reaction that I get when I tell people that is, what do you eat? Because <laughs> for most people, those are pretty staple things mm-hmm. and they're in everything, but it's still, it's only six things. Just a reminder, check out the show notes for the link to her story on the Monty website. Also, I am putting up her website. She has some allergy cards and is in the process of doing some cooking videos and a bunch of other awesome stuff. And then also she had mentioned the rarediseases.org website if you are looking for information and support. The website again is rarediseases.org. Check out the next episode where we're going to talk more about food and her diet and how she got to that place and great suggestions about how If you need to make some food restrictions, how to go about doing that and making it much more pleasant on yourself, as well as working with doctors and some great things she has figured out over her challenging years of exploration. 
So until then, take good care and may you continue to find the pieces that fit beautifully into your health and wellness puzzle. Music for this episode and for the podcast is from the album Synthetic Universe by Brent Ryland and John Lyle. Intro music sampled from Ethereal Float and parting music sampled from Pleiadian Sky. You can find John Lyle's music at johnlyle.com. That's J-O-H-N-L-Y-E-L-L.com. See you next time.